0: So hello and welcome to this inaugural Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani and I will be your host for these podcasts. I'm a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care and I work on the Emergency and Critical Care Service in the RVC's Queen Mother Hostel for Animals. So today for this inaugural podcast it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Holger Volk. Hello. Holger is a diplomat of the European College of Veterinary Neurology. He is head of the Neurology and Neurosurgery Service at the Queen Mother Hospital, as well as being clinical director of the hospital. So thanks very much, Holger, for joining me today. No, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. So, Holger, I thought we would start off these podcasts by discussing a general approach to seizures in dogs and cats. We, um, we only have about 20 minutes, so it won't be a particularly deep dive sure. into the topic. But what I hoped we could do is to provide the listeners with a kind of overview of the general approach and then hopefully come back at a later date and discuss some of the aspects in much more detail. So I wanted to start with the basics, really, by asking you, firstly, what a seizure is, um, but also how we classify them and actually whether the classification of seizures has changed at all in the last decade or so.
1: Okay. We probably could speak about this already for two hours. Um, <laughs> Uh, a seizure, if, if you look in, in the textbooks of, for definition, there's actually quite um, a broad uh, definition, so I, I normally don't like, like to use it. When you ask students what they normally say, it's an imbalance between excitation and inhibition, and I think that's a, a good way to explain how treatment will work. However, I've, I always feel that it's not something you really can grasp and understand. I think the thing what you can really grasp and understand if you think about hypersynchronicity, um, what it means is when you look at an animal seizuring or a human seizuring you see that they are, have a certain rhythmicity. Um, and what will happen is actually you're synchronizing your, your neurons to fire all at the same time with the same uh, rhythmicity, if you want to say. So, um, uh, And,
0: and this, this synchronization is not something that
1: should normally occur? Exactly, exactly. And if you think about having, for example, I mean there's um, a lot of reasons why you can have um, seizures. But let's say you have a... A structural lesion like a tumor. Around that tumor, you will not see an animal which is seizuring the whole time, but around the tumor, most likely those neurons are hypersynchronized already. Um, but um, there's a phenomenon called lateral inhibition, um, so this will be. Uh, kind of stop the spread of this of the seizure focus will be stopped by those neurons stopping this activity. And at one stage, it will break through. Either there's not enough inhibition of that anymore, or there's suddenly the tumor grows, there's more excitation, and then this seizure will spread and you get a hypersynchronicity of the whole brain.
0: Okay, cool. So it's sort of um, about a balancing between excitation and inhibition yep. and how mm-hmm. much synchronization occurs. Yep. And Essentially, if there is Abnormalities in that system, in inverted commas, yeah. then a seizure maker.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly the two ways how we mainly treat uh, seizures. So I, I call it. Um, when I give lectures and people who might have heard me somewhere speak, I, I call the hypersynchronicity, uh, the queen principle, because when you listen to, uh, we will rock you, It's actually, um, very similar to, um, I obviously have an ECC special. We need a bit of that in the background. Ex- exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so it's like staying alive. So staying alive for us is, is actually, um, we will rock you, um, um, and, and have a very similar frequency. How you, when you look when you listen to that song, um, how actually animals are seething. And on the other hand, is what I call the yin and yang principle. So you have the queen principle and the yin and yang principle, which you can explain all uh, the treatment uh, options and the um, uh, what what actually happens. There are certain sodium. Uh, channels which only get activated if there's more activity so more firing going on and those can be blocked and the classic ones are phenytoin and carbamazepine. We don't use a lot of sodium channel blockers, um, uh, use dependent sodium channel blockers in veterinary medicine because of the half-life of the drugs. Um, What we are using um, is more increasing the inhibition over GABA, which opens a chloride channel. What we also don't use, really, apart from refractory styles epilepticus, is decreasing the excitatory pathway, so you can actually give them ketamine, for example, if you have a prolonged seizure okay. activity, but that's that last resort, okay. right?
0: That's interesting. And so, um, so in, in essence, we'll, we'll come on to, at the end, just a, a brief discussion of anticonvulsant therapy, but in essence, the therapies are trying to manipulate that balance between exactly. excitation inhibition. Yeah, exactly. I should just say, for people that aren't aware about this Staying Alive reference, yes. um, <laughs> that they might have seen, I think was adverts on the tv were there about um the rate of compressions exactly uh, for exactly. thoracic compressions to the beat of staying alive so okay cool that's great and um in terms of the classification, because I think when I was at university, yeah. which I'm happy to say was <laughs> about 13, 14 years ago, people used to teach us He's very old. grand mal and petty mal seizures.
1: Yeah, I, I really hate that. Um, and the reason being is because grand mal sounds like there's a lot of badness and petit mal sounds like a little bit of badness. And it yeah. comes really from from human medicine and has not been translated correctly into veterinary medicine. So we, what we call a petit mal is normally a partial seizures, however, or focal seizures, depending uh, which which country you live in. Um, um, and, but pretty mouths are normally described in humans as absence epilepsy, so it's a different type of disease process. Um, I, I rather would just, um, I think we, we actually are working at the moment on a, on a reclassification, which will probably take quite a while to get people uh, agreeing on terminology. But from a clinical problem-solving um, approach, I think it's, it's very important to think about it as focal seizures, um, and then focal seizures can be either uh, symmetrical or asymmetrical, and we, we just, I, I know that you have prepared some scenarios where this becomes more apparent and, um, and generalized seizures. And focal seizures, like we described before, can actually generalize. Um, so okay. I think that's the easiest. And then um, uh, the classic one at the moment most used, and there has been a new 2010 uh, International League Against Epilepsy Human Classification, which has not been as um, much accepted as I think the people have hoped it would, um, but the bottom line is that also in humans they have changed, and, and the reason being is, for example, there was a, um, a terminology of cryptogenic um, epilepsy or possible symptomatic epilepsy that was epilepsy where we um, had an, a human in that case or a, an animal with a focal epilepsy. Um, but when we uh, did all the imaging, what we have available and the other diagnostics we couldn 't find any structural abnormality and what 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 actually was found now is that even some people in humans now which were classified as cryptogenic epilepsy actually had a genetic disorder which makes them actually the more classic one, like a genetic type epilepsy. So they have moved away from this cryptogenic epilepsy. So we we still classify um, uh, epileptic uh, seizures into um, the ones which we call idiopathic when we can't find Pathology, and there is a possibility of um, hereditary um, uh, background saying that you know, it comes from a family of seizures or in a, in a breed which we, has been described to have idiopathic epilepsy or symptomatic epilepsy, um, where we then find a, normally a structural disease process like an inflammatory infectious or neoplastic condition, and then in the last ones where we think there could be a focal lesion. Um, but we couldn't find it on imaging um, with the tools we have available, Um, so cryptogenic or possible symptomatic epilepsy. But like I said, I would see that the the aim for classification is to help um, us to define the disease process better, either because to help us guide our diagnostic plan or to help us to know more about which therapy we should give. And I think that are the two key outcomes. So from a, just, from a
0: descriptive point of view, is it reasonable to use generalized and focal. and focal? Yeah, I
1: think that's totally
0: enough. Okay, and one thing I wasn't clear about, so can epileptic seizures be either focal or generalized? Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah so yeah. that, that perse- So epileptic seizures doesn't mean generalized seizures? No. Okay, no. So, okay, fine, that's good. So um, I think what we're going to do today is try and focus on generalized seizures, yep. just again, because we don't have um, a lot of time to go into into a lot of detail. Um, And I guess the first question is that, especially with my ECC hat on, are there any other kind of episodes that an animal may suffer that may be mistaken, if you like, for a generalized seizure?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, the the classic ones is syncopal um, attacks of of any kind. That is normally the classic one. Um, Other... Uh, things what can happen but to be honest I've seen two cases um, since I've been here since 2004 is narcolepsy or a sleeping type disorder or cataplexy
0: um, so despite all the joking, narcolepsy <laughs> is not actually very common. <laughs> no, no.
1: <laughs> or, 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 or we are just not, not good enough to actually find them
0: <laughs> and treat Fair them all
1: for epilepsy. The, 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 there's two other disease processes, I think, sometimes, especially when, you know, our our interface, um, when, when a patient, and, and we had a couple of those um, coming into the hospital, um, where a patient was perceived to be seizuring, um and having a epilepticus, non-responsive to diazepam, um, and then vets have started them. I mean, you know, because they wanted to do something, obviously, and 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 correctly in that in circumstances, um, have started them on propofol. And then, um, actually, when we were um, trying to wake them up or or image them, then we found that they had a, vac- uh, a vascular accident. So, if you have a very acute vestibular um, d- disease process, they can. Um, look quite violent. So uh, normally, our vestibular system is a is a unilateral system, so the left side controls the left side, the right side the right side. And, um, and And what happens if you let 's say you have an infarct in one of those areas uh, of the vestibular system that um, when you put the animal on the other side, they try to ter- they try to get on the side where the lesion is, so you really like to lay on the side of the lesion. Some of them can be rolling and really struggling and and look very distressed and and most of them, you will be able to differentiate because the animal has a level of awareness still, mm-hmm. um, uh, unless it's really a big brainstem infarct. But normally, uh, that will be the case, and um, and it's really difficult when you get a patient for us. Then you know, with a proper fall, because uh, sure. when you wake the dog up, it starts Are you again. That
0: we've messed them up. No, 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 no. <laughs> but
1: you know, they wake up and then suddenly they start. You know, trying is, to pedal a little bit, like, is, is the myoclonic, is it, is it because of the vestibular? Yeah. And, 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 and so for us, um, when we have those histories, we would always nowadays have changed actually our approach because then we said like, oh, I'm not sure how the animal is. And then now we would actually say, okay, let's check that we didn't miss anything in the brain. That's interesting because
0: I, I think the other thing that, um, again, without going off on too much of a tangent, but I think the other time that um, we sometimes are not clear whether mm. the patient is seizuring or not, is when we think that they've intoxicated themselves yeah. with something that causes kind of peripheral generalized muscle tremors. Yes. And I think your point about trying to observe the patient's level of awareness yes. despite what you're seeing. Yes. I think that point is really important because to look at they could look like they're having a generalized seizure and of course sometimes Totally. some totally. of the drugs can some of the poisons can do both. Yeah. But trying to understand that I think is um, is an interesting and, question. And
1: that's a really good point because um I'm sharing you know that if you have a vestibular, then normally they are lateralized. So that means that on one side they're worse than the other. A, a status epilepticus patient, which is really twitching, is uh, uh, world away, will will not change. It doesn't matter which position you put yeah. it in. Um, the other episodes, which, which fits not, not to your generalized, but, but still is an important uh, uh, thing to discriminate. And again, it, it's just because of personal seeing cases uh, over the years, which were referred that if animals have a cervical neck disc, which is a little bit lateralized and irritates one of the nerve roots, they can then very... Sometimes, obviously, when they do a a wrong turn, they can look like like they were twitching, and even sometimes they can elicit muscle fasciculations, and that can be very easily mistaken, that this animal might have a focal seizure, and they were referred for that in. But that's, again, something what everybody can figure out when you just do a full clinical examination and make sure that you look at the neck and and palpate.
0: That's that's interesting. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. So I guess what we're saying really is that, and and I guess the mental awareness is a big part of the assessment there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, So... What we're going to do is we're going to park status epilepticus aside yeah. for today um, and hopefully come back as a separate podcast sure. to, to discuss that. And that might be quite a fun one to do as a kind of ECC perspective yeah. versus a neurology perspective. 100%. It may or may not be the same. Yeah. We could even talk about shock, <laughs> shock fluid therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so what I wanted to do basically then was just focus on patients that had suffered, um, so not cluster seizures or status epilepticus, yeah. although I think one of the scenarios sort of is a cluster seizure. But um, I guess the other question I wanted to ask you was, if an owner telephones your practice yep. and says to the receptionist and then gets passed on to nurse or, or to yourself um, that they think their animal might have had a fit or a convulsion or whatever word they're going to use, what kind of questions do you think is it important for us to be asking on the phone in order to make a recommendation about whether the patient needs to be seen or do you think that we should just always be saying that your, your, patient, your pet needs to be seen?
1: Yeah, I think we first of all need to establish if the animal is still seizing, um, because that will change your plans. And most seizures will stop after one to two minutes. Um, the brain is actually quite good in, in dampening down uh, the overactivity. And um, obviously, if the animal is continuous seizure, then it needs to be seen as a as an emergency. When you you look at the old textbooks, you find often the thirty minute uh, rule and, and that 30-minute causes of would have to because that comes very much from basic science that if you have an animal seizing for 30 minutes you see uh, reproducibly um, actually brain pathology. However we know from a clinical point of view if an animal is seizing more than five to ten minutes that it's very unlikely the brain will get this under control and need some right. um, further help. We also know that if an animal's is seizuring for a very long time, and now we're kind of talking about epilepticus um, again, but is that their change of their receptors, so for example the GABA receptor will change its subunits, and um, because of that, your diazepam at one stage, there might be even not enough diazepam, any, uh, GABA anymore in the synaptic cleft, but also it, your, your receptor might become diazepam insensit- uh, uh, insensitized. So... Uh, uh, it will not respond as well to and That's why, you know, you use other drugs like Phenobarb and and, and others we we don't go into. But saying that, you know, if if an animal is seizing, it really needs to be seen immediately. And if it's had,
0: um, I mean, we're going to talk about this in the understanding that the patient has been presented to you. But let's say the the, the, the owner brings up and says that my dog has had what they think is a seizure. Sure. Appears to have recovered. It's the first one ever. Um, because obviously as an ECG person, we, 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 take a lot of these, well, a lot, but we've had a lot of these calls true. and there's a, a little bit of a kind of contested debate about whether they to yeah. be seen or not.
1: I, I, I don't think that one single seizure is no seizure. Um, um, saying that what I would definitely ask is to, to understand more the nature of that episode, because it could be quite a few different things like we discussed before, yeah. you know, um, um, seizures normally go through stages. So, um, make sure, you know, you ask, how did it start? Uh, what happened in the beginning? Um, was there any attention-seeking, for example, hypersalivation? Then, um, you know, uh, how did the seizure itself look? How did the ictus look? Its, you know, was the animal still uh, able um, to look in your eyes? Was the level of consciousness? Um, I don't like to ask, for example, the owners the question if, the, um, if they felt that the dog can hear them or the cat, because I think it's something in human nature that we always want to be listened to. So I, I rather ask them, you know, can, can the animal actually look in your eyes during that episode? You know, um, they might not even be able to remember that anymore because it was such a frightening uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, thing to experience. Um, what what happened during, you know, the classic one, any autonomic signs, so hypersalivation, urination, defecation, where um what, which part of the body was affected, were their muscle spasms, were their running movements? And then what happened after the, the seizure? You know, post-dictal signs can be quite important. Was the animal to see able to see or did it suddenly start, ravenous appetite, um, become aggressive, all those things uh, would help you to differentiate to other diseases. You know, I normally are So, not so understand, try and,
0: so to try and get the information you need to A, understand whether it was actually truly a generalized exactly. seizure episode. And then um, if it was, understand the information of what occurred. Um, and also in your experience, is it, would it be fair to say that most patients have a pre-ictal, ictal, post-ictal period, or is, it, is that most, a bit too much most of a generalization, yeah, or most, rather detectable one? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's always a question, what is detectable? It depends on your owner, I guess, you know, but most animals will have some form of a, uh, stages, you know, if they have some, might have more pre-ictal than post-ictal, um, most of them will be actually sleepy afterwards. Um, and I think You know, the the question is when to see, and I I definitely wouldn't recommend to say, okay, you just want seizure, you you won't go to the VAT. But I think it's still prudent to go to the VAT and have a check over. Um, But the question is obviously when to see them. You know, is it a – does it have to be – do I have to get out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning or (laughs) can I wait until tomorrow (laughs) morning? You're awake anyway. Obviously, if (laughs) if yeah, or you're (laughs) awake anyway. um, um, Or or what you do is, you know, you – Um, If the animal has another seizure, then obviously it changes dramatically because then, you know, cluster seizures are difficult to control and then they need definitely immediate attention. I guess we talk a little bit later about age um, as, as anybody who has worked with me. And I don't believe that age is a disease process. Um, age is something which happened it's naturally. Cause it's
0: just because we're both getting old. <laughs> <laughs> you say that now. Oh,
1: probably, probably, because <laughs> yesterday was my birthday, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm exactly. aware about age now. But 31, right? <laughs> uh, but but saying that, um, there is a, there's a classic that um, um, if you are younger than six months and older than six years, your likelihood increases of getting... Um, um, Non idiopathic epilepsy, or having um, you know symptomatic epilepsy, for example.
0: Actually, that, that and that leads us very nicely onto the next thing that I wanted to do was to just consider um, three different case scenarios um, that people in first opinion practice would potentially see quite often, and try and get a sense from you about what you would suggest that they should be or how, how they should be approaching these sure. cases. And I think that the scenarios will hopefully cover um, a lot of what we have to talk about in terms mm-hmm. of the approach here. So the first scenario then was um, a three-year-old male neutered border collie. He suffered one episode that's described as being consistent with a generalized seizure um, the day before from which he recovered uneventfully after a short post period. Um, there's no other significant history. Your physical examination, including a relatively thorough non-neurological neurologist examination, mm-hmm. is unremarkable. So basically a three-year-old border collie that's had one generalized seizure, Owner presents the dog to you what would you suggest
1: yeah i, I um it's quite handy um we, we submitted a paper about this and and hopefully that will be accepted shortly but i had a, a very good uh, uh student uh, coming over from uh, romania miela amasu um who worked extremely hard and we looked at actually mathematically modeling the different uh groups of diseases, so you will hear this uh, over and over again in a second. But what what, what we found is that if you had um, an animal which was um, between the age of six months and six years, um, had no changes um, on your normal interictal neurological examination, and um, had um, a generalized seizure which was symmetrical, even if they had a focal seizure, but symmetrical, then they had a very high likelihood of having idiopathic um, or primary epilepsy. Um, in a case like that, you know, you would still need to rule out um, any metabolic changes, and, and probably especially look at, uh, um, you know, typical, you know, electrolytes and glucose and so on. But the likelihood is, is very high. If this animal will also have a history, which which we didn't model, but if this animal will also have a history of having Some relatives involved, um, then it's it's getting higher. Border collies like to get, um, I mean, they they have a a higher prevalence at least that what we assume than other breeds. Um, We just published another paper in in Vet Record in uh, at the moment online first um, since January, um, where we looked at the prevalence data from the Vet Compass project we do here and. Interestingly, in the uni- univariate statistic analysis, there were quite a few breeds which are normally mentioned. But when we looked at and uh, normalised for breed, um, because obviously certain breeds are quite common, then actually they fell out. And the border collie was one of them. But still, I mean, clinically, we see a lot of
0: border collies, and
1: yeah, and they, they sometimes react. They're sometimes not easy to treat.
0: And actually, that um, that prompts me to ask you another question, really, because again, it's something that in my role. Um, as somebody that's sort of tasked with s- supervising the voter commas, vets in emergency practice in recent years, that question of blood tests, no blood tests, um, and the the response is, well, you're looking for intracranial versus extracranial mm. causes, and you should do some kind of blood work to try and eliminate extracranial causes. And again, we always have this discussion about doing tests when there's a reasonable index of suspicion sure. to perform them. And so I suppose in that respect... Um, would, do, do you think it's a fair statement to say that in a patient like this one, in our first scenario, in the vast majority of cases, that blood work will be unremarkable, yes, it but probably. that it's important to perform? Or would you say that... I personally, I mean, you know, this is a really difficult
1: question to answer 100%. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but yeah. I personally would feel happier if I would have done it. Um, you know, if let's say, you know, the owner is not worried at all, um, or there was a possibility of intoxication or whatever, perhaps, you know, it would not be 100% necessary. I think definitely if they had, I mean, we, we don't say after one seizure that it's epilepsy, you know, they have to have, uh, recurrent seizure activity. So, um, obviously, after the second one, I would definitely recommend um, at least an extra cranial workup um, yeah. to make sure that, you know, um, we don't find
0: anything. Cool. Um, so, and then our second scenario is going to take us off on a different tangent, really, because here we've got a nine-year-old female neutered boxer, and she suffered two generalized seizures in the preceding 24 hours. Um, she does appear to have fully recovered, and her owner also says that actually over the last two weeks or so, she sometimes appears to be wobbly um, and occasionally seems to pace at night, and this is something that she never used to do. Um, your physical exam is unremarkable, but your neurological exam reveals a left-sided menace deficit, and there's reduced knuckling on both the left sure. forelimb and the left hind limb. So, what would you suggest to the owner of this dog? So,
1: so um, again, from Michaela's study, um, um, which yeah, I mean, you know, probably people will make their own mind about it and then say it's rubbish, but she did an incredible uh, amount of work, and we had quite a few hundred dogs in that study. And from that point, again, the best cutoff for the modeling from uh, for our for statistical model was actually over six years of age. Um, I wouldn't use, you know, which, which I always feel quite... Um, I try to make sure the students don't do that, that they say, oh, there's a boxer coming, it's, uh, seven years of age, um, it has to have a brain tumor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's wrong. Um, but um, what she found is that if the animals had either symmetrical inter neurological abnormalities or even, I mean, the odds ratio actually for asymmetrical inter-ictal neurological um, exam changes were like 29, so, you know, there's a really high odds ratio compared to age, which was actually really small yeah. um, um, and um, the same was actually um, when you ask and nowadays we have the iPhone or whatever other Samsung let's make some commercial for other companies <laughs> other smartphones, exactly. are available, other smartphones yes. with video <laughs> devices um, <laughs> are yes. yeah um, it's actually quite good to to look at the video and see again if there. If they are focal seizures, okay, but if they actually have asymmetrical focal seizures, um, because that again can tell you if there is uh, a possibility that there is something intracranial. So, saying that, taking all this together, um, all, for all those factors, that uh, intracranial workup is just more li- uh, m- uh, more. I mean, it's more likely that you have an intracranial pathology, so you should do an intracranial workup.
0: And um, the, the third scenario is about a cat, which we'll come on to in a minute. But I guess another question that um that's worth discussing. Really, is obviously in terms of an intracranial workup. Then, so w- I guess we feel that in in, f- in kind of most first opinion practices, you could at least make a start with doing extracranial sure. workup. Um, at what point do you have to say to an owner, well, we need to refer you for to continue this workup? Um, I mean, a case
1: a case like this, you know, I, I I would strongly advise the owner that they need to consider an intracranial workup because you found. You know, uh, asymmetrical changes on your inter in the exam, and and I, I said something. So we 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 use for the model actually breed as a random effect, and then we added in breeds again, and actually the one only with this model which came back having a structured disease possible boxer. So um, which was yeah, but um, uh, saying that you know, uh, y- sure you you could do now uh, at least do the bloods, make sure that there's otherwise metabolic nothing going on but this was, you know can you ever be 100% certain you can't but in a case like that it's very likely that the animal has an intracranial disease process so it doesn't mean that it has to have a tumor it could also be you know a vascular event uh, could have been a, a, a brain bleed and then the animal made seizure um, there's still other possibility it could be an inflammatory uh, infectious you know depending where you live in the country in the world or um, in neoplastic conditions. So there's still possibility to treat. It doesn't mean that um, you know there's nothing you Absolutely. can do. Yeah. Um,
0: so I guess what I was trying to do with those first two scenarios, really, was to just reconfirm, I suppose, that it's reasonable to think of patients on the basis of their signalment, their history, and your examination findings in terms of yes. raising the index of suspicion yes. for extracranial versus intracranial and also, I guess urgency of investigation and make some recommendations based on that information yes and obviously ultimately counsel the owner to decide what they choose to do cool all right and then probably the um i think most of us it's probably fair to say non-neurologists probably see cats with be it focal or generalized seizure less often or at least i sometimes wonder whether i've missed historical bits that were seizures that i didn't know that the cat had had but that's a, a kind of another question so my my scenario here was a 13-year-old female to domestic short hair that presents with a history of intermittent uh, facial twitching. Um, and the last episode was earlier on, on the day that you see the cat. The cat's indoors. Um, the owner says that the cat's been otherwise well, but she does mention that the cat seems to be running around the house kind of almost manically recently. Mm. Um, and again... I know some cats like my own, for example, have episodes of running manically around the house, but this is a bit more persistent. Also, it's out of character for this cat. Um, your physical exam, there's a grade two out of six murmur, and the cat might have mildly reduced body condition. But otherwise, um, the rest of the physical exam is unremarkable, but you do notice that the cat has a niceochoria as well. And so, what would you suggest to the owner of this 13-year-old cat? Yeah, very similar to the the boxer scenarios.
1: Obviously, we didn't model now for cats, but I mean the same principle applies, right? There's uh, interictal uh, behaviour changes. Um, sometimes not always very easy to differentiate because they can last quite long after a seizure. But it sounds like that that there's definitely a, a, a bit more than um, from from the description you say what is normal. Um, and then you have a mild annisocharea um, um which could obviously be multiple reasons why the animal has that, but it could also indicate that potentially the the animal starts to herniate um, and um so again, I would think an intracranial workup would be the best uh,
0: scenario for that patient and um so speaking about cats, and how often do you hmm. how often do cats suffer? the kind of classical generalized seizure that you know this seeing. is so
1: so really difficult to say um cats um which i always find fascinating in the uk i mean there's other countries i see a lot more cats uh in in uh referral hospitals but i mean we see a relatively little number of cats even if you know it's a, used to be the number one pet, and now it's behind the dog we live close to london but still i mean <laughs> it's, it's sad No, we don't see so many cats yeah. um I'm just not sure if they're not referred. Um, uh, there's a big debate. If 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 I, I I called it actually in my article epilepsy of unknown origin or etiology, so meaning that you couldn't find anything abnormal to to not go down. Did the you say of
0: unknown original etiology. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> for us for us it's unknown
1: <laughs> origin. Yeah. So, um, and the reason why I did it is because I didn't I wanted to avoid the idiopathic epilepsy terminology, which which would indicate some. F- potentially form of, um, you know, genetic uh, predisposition. Um, And in cats, there's always has been a big debate, um, but we definitely certainly see, um, you know, cats where we do all the imaging and uh, extra cranial workup with which we don't find a pathology. Interestingly, um, uh, Akos Pakotsky from uh, Vienna, he has done just um, a very nice study. And in humans, there has been since a while... Uh, people have found uh, autoantibodies, um, and this one is a potassium uh, antibody uh, in those cats. And, and what can happen is that those um, autoantibodies actually target the potassium channels, and mainly in the hippocampus, um, and which can explain why some of them are really difficult um, to actually treat. Um, and the, the question is, Will do they get now the epilepsy because they have those autoantibodies, or is it because they had prolonged seizure activity, which then opened the blood-brain barrier yeah, and then... Yeah. I mean, that would be a question. But it's definitely... Akers has done a fantastic job. He has done a really nice paper. And it's something which has been debated about pharmacoresistant epilepsy in humans for a while. So it is, it is quite interesting. So um,
0: pharmacoresistance is, again, I'm just being quite basic, on head, yeah. but it's more prevalent in cats?
1: Um, cats can be sometimes challenging to treat. Yeah. Um, um, but, again, we don't, you know, the, we don't have... Um, there was one paper here from uh, States... Um, where they have shown that, you know, uh, I think a third had idiopathic epilepsy and the others um, had some other diseases. That's interesting. Um,
0: and in states of even rare, like generalized state sepilepsy. epilepsy. Yeah, I don't know. Have you seen a lot of cats? I was just going to say, no. I, I'm pretty sure I have never seen, no, seen one. No, um, I mean, so.
1: what what is with cats, though, is that if they have generalized seizures, they can look very violent. I mean, they sometimes even have those type of running fits, so, they, you know, they, they just...
0: Start running against the wall and it can really, really bad. You yeah, know. yeah. I don't think I've, I, don't think I've seen one. But mm. um, okay, great. That's excellent. So, just to finish up, really, I wanted to just do a bit of a kind of Q and A, really, um, on anticonvulsant therapy. And I guess again, we are sort of focusing on on dogs. But again, it's something that people will do a lot in practice. Sure. There's just a couple of things that. I wanted to just knock off, really. Um, so my perception is that probably the most widely used approach in terms of first-line anticonvulsive therapy is for people to start phenobarbital. Yep. Yeah, and, and that's what we have to do, right, from the licensing point of view.
1: Um, there soon will be uh, an, another uh, drug coming on, on the market called imipo- imipitoin, um, um, and I probably have to train better to say it. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, not not allowed to say the trade name yet, but it's uh, it will also be uh, a drug which you can start um, uh, for li- for, for generalized for generalized idiopathic epilepsy, right? So okay. um, again, um, as a first line treatment. And, and um,
0: what's called Im- Imipatoin. Im- yeah, imipitoin. exactly. Yeah. And um, expect- will it be cheapish, expensive?
1: Um, I mean, I guess it's it's like. Um, you know, always the price the, price. the price. <laughs> the price is always the first thing. I, I'm. I'm sure. I'm. I'm not 100% certain how they will price it. I'm sure it will be a tiny bit more expensive than the, uh, you know, phenobarbital. Um, saying that, um, it, it hopefully will have some potential advantages. I mean, Phenobarbital is a really great drug. Um, but you know hear it here yeah, it's, uh, and it's still used a lot in it's humans a, actually in first opinion so yeah. um, in, in 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 it's because it's very cheap you know however you know you have some side effects you have the PUPD the polyphagia um, uh, and, and the potential that you can get liver toxicity um, and they can get wobbly. Most of them are the first two weeks, but, you know, my own dog, for example, you know, she, she at the end, uh, she, I mean, she was a spayed female, and uh, at the end she was leaking um, anyway because, and then she was also PUPD, and it really makes, it's not, not it's nice. Yeah. And, and, and if, obviously, you have a drug um, which, has potentially uh, less side effects, it's, it's beneficial. And if you look in the human drug development, um, the biggest advances uh, advances have actually been not in in the pure efficacy management. Rather, um, you, you somehow always have a third of animals, humans, which don't respond to treatment, um, but it's actually in the side effect profile. So if, if you nowadays you know, start with a, a drug like leviteracetam, you... Uh, you know, it's just it's different. You can have a more normal life than starting on phenobarb, for example.
0: Um, so that's cool. So we might hopefully one day in the future come back and talk about... Yeah, there would be imi- interesting. Imipatoin. Yes, yes. Excellent. Um, a couple of quickies. So if you start an animal on phenobarb without a loading regime, how long might you consider it to take to become clinically effective?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, actually, um, uh, it will be loaded quite quickly. Um, so rule of thumb is... Um, you know uh, three three to five half-lives and uh, the half-life depending which books you look in is between let's say 20 and 40 hours Um, so you you will have it but then what happens with phenobarb we all know this, that you get a liver enzyme induction um, and um, what happens then actually you decrease your phenobarb serum levels again and that peaks normally around 7 days so that's why we normally take our serum concentration 12-14 days yeah? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but again, how it depends how quickly you need the drug. So if you, you can load with Phenobarb, um, over a 24 hour period, um, giving them, you know, uh, whatever, four to five milligrams per kilogram every couple of hours until you reach, uh, 20 and to 24. The
0: protocols vary a bit, don't they? Really? Yeah. Well, I've used well, I've used different ones, and we've hear about people using yeah. different ones. So, yeah. okay, and um, and then in terms of ongoing monitoring for long term patients, um, in terms of checking the the phenobarb level, presumably you s- you would check it more often earlier on, and then maybe you. Increase yeah. your checking interval. Or? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not wrong to have an animal coming
1: every three, uh, every six six months or three quarters of a year, um, and just check it over and make sure that, you know, the liver is still fine and the animal has not changed and you know, the drug levels are still similar. Um, um, if you are with a drug level with a finubarb, whatever drug you actually use, a little bit below, but uh, but the response of the animal is fantastic. You mm-hmm. don't, you don't, you're not treating the therapeutic range, right? You're treating the animal. So that might be just enough for that animal to get it back into the balance.
0: And w- would, it, would it work the same way? So if you had an animal that was pushing up the top end of normal of the therapeutic range yeah. but was still clinical, could you go above the therapeutic range? You, you could,
1: but, but especially with phenobarb, if you go um, over the top 90% of the therapeutic range, um, or actually, let's say, better reference range, um, because it's probably the better terminology, then um, you, you increase your likelihood of having uh, liver pathology on the long run. So uh, I wouldn't do that. And then you add it's other drugs, which therapy. which in, in Europe would be most countries, is now potassium bromide is licensed as the second line. And then that's what you would do. And, and again. How
0: long would. Um, Again, without a sort of obvious loading regime, how long would bromide? Yeah, take? it's
1: it's it's around six weeks, um, and and bromide is uh, treated in the body is very similar to chloride, um, and 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 as you, I mean, we we don't pee the world of chloride out every day, so the same with the bromide. So, you know, uh, it takes
0: takes a while to build up, but then you don't lose so much, right? Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, Excellent. Thank you for that. So, um, And I just really wanted to end. You mentioned it already, but um, one of the agents that has um, become increasingly available in recent years has been leviteracetam. Yep. And um, I know from spending time out in First Opinion World and in recent times that it is something that comes up um, often. So I just wondered whether you could tell us a little bit about it and also... In what kind of scenarios do you think first opinion practitioners might consider it being an appropriate drug to be using?
1: Yeah, there has been a, a couple of, of trials. We we did one open-label trial, and um, you know, there's always a question of the value of those trials, saying that um, you know, you have to start somewhere to see if there's any efficacy in uh, using a drug. And um, in that one, we, we we definitely saw that giving it chronically at the end of the long run. In the beginning, there were like two-thirds, but then one-third actually stopped working uh, the drug stopped working in this population. And uh, in the long run, for the chronic use, it was one-third um, of patients had an improved seizure control. There was a nice study, a very nice study from Karen Munyana, um, where she, they did a crossover design, unfortunately, if you do those, it's one of the problems, if you do those trials with animals which have very high seizure frequencies, what actually happens is that some of them, you know, I think they just they have such a bad disease process or so whatever you throw in them, nothing really works. And, um, and she, she couldn't complete the crossover design. Mm-hmm. However, in that one, it looked like liver had compared to baseline to pre-trial um, an effect, but not to compared to placebo. Um, and, and the placebo effect is, is actually... Uh, one shouldn't ignore it, is, is quite high. I mean, saying that, I, I think mainly more it's a regression to the mean effect, meaning that an animal comes onto a trial when it's the the worst, um, and then that's why, you know, the compliance to come on a trial is very high, and then obviously just by the nature of the disease they will get better, right? Yeah. And you see that with a lot of diseases, yeah. and we need to be quite critical when we... Because recruiting patients for those trials is not, not trivial. And... Um, um, what what we nowadays do is actually we, we treat mainly the cluster seizures um, uh, because other drugs um, are not as uh, not as good um, with pulse therapy with levetiracetam. So we still have them on the standard antiepileptic drugs we have to date, um, and then uh, instead of giving diazepam because the fact of diazepam is just too short acting because mm. the cluster you know they have like after three. Th- hours another seizure we, we just um, a higher initial dose of leviteracetam followed up by the normal maintenance dose every eight hours until they don't seizure anymore for 48 hours and then we, we stop so after
0: two or 48 hours without a seizure you stop yeah the therapy yeah and and, and, and
1: that works quite well because it's not as cost prohibitive you know because leviteracetam depending again which country you live in um, and it will soon get cheaper in most countries because, you know, it's just, uh, it's, yeah, yeah uh, the patent runs out. So, um, But that's something we uh, have done. We have done just a clinical audit um, and, and looked because we changed how we did it. And there's another study where they looked at uh, liver shunt patient, and there it looked like liver had an effect. So I think there is some evidence that liver uh also is seizure controlling in in dogs um but uh what we don't have until now unfortunately is a is a you know prospective trial where we actually use it as a primary um to really to really prove it you know so
0: um so for practitioners and i guess we're saying as you say if you have animals that are already on kind of standard anti Mm convulsive therapy and they seem to be clinically affected by that process then Use it as pulse therapy. Presumably, you have to do something to what their long-term regime has been at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you need. To, I think
1: you need to have some chronic uh, drugs in the back. I wouldn't just. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm at least not the chronic therapy. Yeah, I mean, first. I mean, first of all, I think we have a cascade regulation, and you know, we need to follow that. But on the other hand, I also. Uh, uh, would feel not confident. Let's say, you know, you would just treat the clusters and suddenly the all oc- becomes a epilepticus and you didn't have phenobomb, but I would not feel very happy about it. Um,
0: and on that subject, actually, do you think it's fair? Uh, my impression from having been here in this hospital for a few years on and off is that we sometimes see patients that appear to be uncontrolled and we manage to control them by essentially playing with is the wrong word, but amending their chronic therapy. Sure. Does that seem fair?
1: Sure. I mean, you always, you always start with one drug, you play until the end, yeah. then you take add on a second drug, and then you, you do.
0: So if a practitioner faces a patient on chronic therapy, mm. and the patient is uncontrolled, in inverted commas, in essence, they have two choices. One is to try and amend the chronic therapy. One is to consider adding levitrasen. But I guess it, what I'm getting at there is, would that seem like a, a potentially appropriate case for referral to be evaluated by a neurologist yeah, yes. to have?
1: I I I think you, uh, it's exactly what you say. I mean, every time an animal is not responding, um, if you're specialist or not, you just need to reconsider if what you have done is correct. You know, and um, um, I think we we don't have. I mean, we should try to cure everything, but um we, we will never be able to, but we should definitely be uh as critical to ourselves that if something you know is just not responding as they should uh, as it should um, is that we, we need to just rethink it and, and uh, just take stops yeah exactly excellent. and then ask someone else you know um, excellent
0: yeah. um, look Holger I think that's all we have time for today I'm sure we've gone <laughs> well over the allocated time but that's sure that really really interesting and it was the first one so we're forgiven um, as I say I hope that at some point in the future we can come back and talk about some of the things in a bit more detail and focus sure. and, and kind of dig deep into them that would be great um, Otherwise, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Okay. Um, so that's the end of this first small animal clinical podcast from the RVC. Um, please do feel free to get in touch and provide feedback on the format of the podcast, whether you found it useful and so on, so that we can continue to tweak uh, the podcast going forward you can get in touch in one of three main ways so you can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page, you can email me directly um, and the address is sjassani at rbc.ac.uk or you can tweet us at um, at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClin. So I hope you find the podcast useful and um, that you'll look out for the next installments and until then do take care of yourselves and